short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. The American people, I think, is good people. They are. They have not to charge with the guilty of all the lies. Welcome back to the Cold War, Fidel Castro mini biography that's taking us four hours. We're going into a fourth hour of Fidel, and we're barely scratching the surface, right? I mean, I know. yeah, but barely have, scratching the surface, right? But again, I have to say, as an American who crammed for this in order to get ready, I learned a lot about Castro. I certainly learned a lot that. Um, that's either closer to the truth or just another perspective of him. He was a human. He was doing the best he could. He cared about his people, but you really do. But when you go in on your own and you study something or you study someone like this, it rehumanizes them, which is in the, one of the very first things that American propaganda does or any propaganda does is that it dehumanizes a person. So again, it's, it's been a breath of fresh air and I really am enjoying what we've been doing and, and the learning that I've been doing in order to prepare for this. Well, I'm glad, and yeah, they, and to me, it's always a it's always a, a signal that I'm being bullshitted to when I hear anyone being demonized or vilified beyond all fucking sense in uh, right. in the media. As soon as they say, "Oh, and he's drinking children's blood, and he's uh, you out. know he's he, he's burning their babies in ovens and then putting them on a spit and eating it," I'm like, "Yeah, okay." As soon as as soon as the rhetoric reaches a certain, it doesn't appear to be balanced. Right. Then I'm going okay. I mean, maybe I'm not being bullshitted to here, but my spidey sense goes off that I'm being <laughs> bullshitted to. You know. Exactly. So at the end of the last episode, uh, we were talking about uh, comparing the Cuban economy to other islands that are run by the U.S., uh, Puerto Rico and Hawaii and how Cuba's been uh, shut out and is doing probably better than Puerto Rico in many respects, um, even though Puerto Rico is uh, run entirely by the United States. So, <clears throat> yeah. Let's continue with the New York Times' amazingly uh, hysterical and biased coverage. After forcing the entire nation into a failed effort to reach a record 10 million tonne sugar harvest in 1970, Mr. Castro recognized the need to break the cycle of dependence on the Soviets and sugar. Once more, he relied on his belief in himself and his revolution for solutions. One unlikely consequence was his effort to develop a Cuban super cow that would fly around the world, defeating the evil capitalists. I am super cow. (laughs) Leaping entire barns in a single bound. Although he had Putting no training in, with my udders. Oh, sorry. Although he had no training in animal husbandry, Mr. Castro decided to crossbreed humpbacked Asian zebus with standard Holsteins to create a new breed that could produce milk at prodigious rates. 
Now, they're kind of making fun of him here. I kind of admire this. I love Castro's attitude, man. He's like, fucking can't be that hard. Uh, I'll just read a couple of books. As a super cow. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But look, most farmers who crossbreed their own uh, crops and their own animals aren't trained in animal husbandry either. Particularly, Who in the fuck is? Well, yeah, maybe in modern times, but throughout most of history, that's the way farming worked. You go, okay, well, I'll breed these two and see what happens, right? Yeah. Anyway, Castro liked to read. He liked to study. As I've said before, prodigious mind. uh, Love, you know, very, very, very highly developed intellect. And if you don't believe me, go watch an interview with him or or listen to a speech or read a fucking speech, man. And I, I challenge any one of you to you know, put up a counter-argument against one of his speeches or get up and give a four-hour speech like he was uh, famous, famously used to do. I mean, the guy uh, the guy was very, very smart guy. Whether you hate him or love him or in between, you have to concede the guy was very, very smart, very, very articulate, had a brilliant mind. Decades later, the Zebus could still be found grazing in pastures across the island, symbols of Mr. Castro's micromanagement. A view of the hybrid, a few of the hybrids did give more milk, and one that set a milk production record was stuffed and placed in a museum. But most were no better producers than their parents. So he, you know, they took the piss out of him. But he actually did breed a cow that produced more milk than any other cow on record. So now you just got to clone that one cow, and you're off. Yes. To yes. Yeah. Unfortunately, in the seventies, cloning technology not around. That's right. As the Soviets settled in Cuba in the 1960s, hundreds of Cuban students were sent to Moscow, Prague, and other cities of the Soviet bloc to study science and medicine. Admirers from around the world, including some Americans, were impressed with the way that healthcare and literacy in Cuba had improved. A reshaping of Cuban society was underway. Cuba's tradition of racial segregation was turned upside down as peasants from the countryside, many of them dark-skinned descendants of Africans enslaved by the Spaniards centuries before, were invited into Havana and other cities that had been overwhelmingly white. They were given the keys to the elegant homes and spacious apartments of the middle-class Cubans who had fled to the United States. Rents came to be little more than symbolic. And basic foods like milk and eggs were sold in government stores at below production costs. This is in the 60s. What was happening in the US in the 60s, Ray? Were, were the blacks in America given the keys to mansions and paid symbolic rents of a few bucks and given below production costs food? Close. They were given the receiving end of dogs, attack dogs, and fire hoses. And the, and the KKK and the and bombing the of black and churches. Lynchings and, and, yeah, you still had segregation. Yeah. You know, yeah. they were treated. Uh, and content now they're just all put in prisons. So, again, okay, uh, you can either portray the Cuban revolutionary government as uh, ending racial segregation, um, making access to accommodation and food costly, uh, cost-effective for most of the poor people, um, increasing education and health care for them. Or you can portray them as a brutal, oppressive and repressive human rights abuser and government. But you can't do both. I mean, they are, they are either trying to make life better for the people and including ending racial segregation or they're oppressing the poor people. I mean, 
you you can't say that the same government is doing both things. I mean, you can say right. it, but it's a pretty it's fucking bullshit. hard argument to make unless you can right. back it up with hard data. Very hard, again, to say that these two sorts of... Because these, these actions are based on ideology. You can't say that the, 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 the one government has an ideology of making life better for poor people and simultaneously oppressing poor people and depriving them of their rights. You know what I mean? It just yeah. it's yeah. inconsistent. Yeah. Unless I mean it's not impossible. I'm not saying that this is impossible. I'm saying it's inconsistent, it's incongruous. And in order to uh uh, uh prove that, the burden of proof is on the people that are that are that are claiming the incongruency and they have to provide hard evidence, not just claims, not just anecdotal stories. Hard evidence. And if you can't then I'm sorry, I'm not going to I'm not going yeah. to believe it until I'm uh, until you convince me. Right. Mr. Castro's early overhauls also changed Cuba in ways that were less than utopian. Foreign-born priests were exiled and local clergy were harassed so much that many closed their churches. The Roman Catholic Church excommunicated Mr. Castro for violating a 1949 papal decree against supporting communism. He established a sinister system of local committees for the defense of the revolution, which set neighbors to informing on neighbors. Thousands of dissidents and homosexuals were rounded up and sentenced to either prison or forced labor. And although blacks were welcomed into the cities, Mr. Castro's government remained overwhelmingly white. So they semi-complimented him in the previous paragraph and then took it away with the following paragraph. And a lot of this stuff sounds horrible um, and is true to varying degrees. And this is where a lot of the criticism of Castro comes from. Uh, and and mm-hmm. so I want to unpick this a little bit. Um, so the Catholics were against communism. Why? Because Jesus said so. Actually, the early Christians were communists. As I've pointed out on one show or another at some point, go back and read fucking the letters of the epistles of St. Paul. And he'll talk about how the Christians were um, owning no property. Anything that they owned was given to the community and shared equally. Christianity was founded on communism, folks. So if you're anti-communist, you're anti-Christian. And if you think of yourself as both a Christian and an anti-communist... Well, fuck, that's some fucking mental hurdles you're pulling. You're jumping through some fucking hoops in your head, aren't you? I would argue that if you consider yourself a Christian anti-communist, you understand fucking neither Christianity or <laughs> communism, and you're a dipshit. Probably and I know, I've, I know I've offended a bunch of people there, but I'm sorry, it's true, folks, because Christianity was originally communist. So anyway... Uh, and look it up. You don't believe me? Yeah, Go and read the Epistles of St. Paul, which you've probably never read because you haven't fucking read the Epistles of St. Paul either. No, have I you? know I haven't. No, fucking okay. I mean, no, I haven't. You, you, <laughs> I have many times and recently because I'm doing a documentary about it. Um, anywho, uh, so, so, yeah, so no kidding. The clergy who were harassed, the clergy that uh, are against communism. In a communist country, so if if the communists are trying to make life better for the people and the church is saying communism is bad, that means the church doesn't want the living standards of the people to be improved. They're against the government. 
uh, which is the government of the people, if it's a communist government. Yeah, I mean, the the, the, the church is going to be harassed. Now, the, the, the priests weren't round up and executed like they were in the Soviet Union after the revolution. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, uh, I'm not surprised. But here's again, is what Castro has to say himself. This is in his autobiography that was came out in the mid-2000s. It was a culture. The same thing happened with other sectors. Oh, he's talking about homosexuals here, by the way. I, uh, with women, the same thing happened with other sectors with women. I can most assuredly tell you that the revolution never encouraged those prejudices. On the contrary, we encouraged a struggle against various kinds of prejudice. With respect to women, there were prejudices, very strong ones, and with respect to homosexuals too. At this point, I'm not going to defend myself against all that. At the part of the responsibility that I bear, I accept. I certainly had other ideas with respect to that problem. I had opinions, and for my part, I instinctively opposed and had always opposed any abuse, any discrimination, because that society which had been based on injustice was saturated with prejudice. Homosexuals were most certainly the victims of discrimination. In other places, much more than here, but they certainly were in Cuba victims of discrimination. Today, a much more civilised, more educated population is gradually overcoming those prejudices. So what he's saying is, look... Cuba before the revolution uh, was a very, very Catholic population. Catholics, as everyone knows, very against women, very against homosexuals, even to today against the homosexuals, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So he's saying there was discrimination against women and homosexuals before the revolution and you don't change a society overnight with those sort of deep-seated prejudices that had been around forever they still exist today right and especially if it's based on something like you know god's telling you or whatever the priests are telling you so yeah you don't just remove that kind of stuff overnight exactly and so he's also saying he doesn't deny his own responsibility in this that he was the leader of the country and things happened while he was the leader of the country and 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 even though he didn't believe in them didn't want to have he couldn't be everywhere all the time and, and I've got some more quotes about these so-called internment camps that homosexuals were put into. He denies that, except for some exceptions that he found out about and cleaned up. But again, and I'm not saying again that Castro, that his view here is the God's honest truth. He might be spinning this, but I'm just giving you his perspective. The truth is probably neither all one or all the other, probably lies somewhere in between. But we have to hear both perspectives and try and figure out where the truth is likely. But again, interestingly here, again, your typical brutal dictator late in life isn't going to say, I bear part of the responsibility for the injustices that happened against the homosexuals in my country. That is not, that is not the language of a brutal oppressor of human rights, a brutal dictator. Mm-hmm. You never heard Hitler say, look, sure, some bad things happened to the Jews on my watch, and I feel bad about that. I wanted something different, got out of control, quite honestly. Um, full credit. I, yeah, yeah. He doesn't say I feel responsibility. I bear that. He, he was like, "Yeah, we killed the fucking Jews. It was my idea all along." There, you know, do you, do you, there's a vast difference between the rhetoric of a Hitler or a Saddam or a Stalin and Castro. Vast gulf between their rhetoric. And and again, either he is the greatest bullshit artist in history, bullshit artist in history, or 
He is genuinely a social justice revolutionary. Not perfect, uh, but genuinely believed in these ideals and tried to do his best to implement them in Cuba. Um, now, what he says in... Whenever the subject of homosexual internment camps gets brought up, people bring it up with Facebook all the time. But he threw homosexuals into internment camps. I always say, really? Can you back that up with evidence? And they go, well, someone said it happened. I'm like, okay. So maybe it, maybe it did, maybe it didn't, but here's the other side of the story. Now, immediately after the revolution, the, obviously the economy's in dire straits, and one of the things that they implemented was a policy that everyone needed to support the effort of the revolution. You needed to be actively involved. Again, 20% of the population have been unemployed before this. The vastly uneducated, most of them. It includes the blacks, probably more than the whites. One of the reasons why the political um, establishment was mostly white, certainly in the first decades, is because most of the black population had no education. Um, and very hard to run and you know, be the chief minister of the economy if you can't read or write. Um so, but one of the things they do to try to get everyone to be productive, a productive member of society, one of the ways is they had forced military involvement for everybody, men and women. You had to be involved in the army, but homosexuals weren't allowed or weren't accepted to be part of the army. There were these uh, um, big issues with gays in the military. Now, is that unique to a communist culture or a Caribbean culture, Ray? I'm guessing no. No. Uh, it was only, what, a decade ago that America repealed yeah. Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Don't tell. Right, yeah. Right? Still trying Even to America yeah. kept gays out of the military. It had a big issue with that up until the 21st century, give or take, more or less. I can't remember exactly when it was. Um, so it was the same in Cuba in the 60s. Now, they still wanted the homosexuals to be active in the economy, to be, you know, pulling their weight, doing their part, but they couldn't put them in the army. So there were work camps put together for people that couldn't go and work in the army to do other things. Work in the fields, make shit, be in factories, to be in to, to get them involved in the economy. Again, let's remember here. All of the corporate, American corporations that have been running everything have just pulled out or been kicked out. Uh, there's this, the economy's in a fucking hole. They're trying to kickstart the economy and get everybody productive. Um, so they set up work camps and they put people that weren't in the military in it, a lot of homosexuals or people that wouldn't be involved in the military for religious reasons. They were pacifists or they refused to mm -hmm. take part in the military. They said, that's fine. You have to go and join one of these work camps. We've got to find ways to make you productive. Now, these are portrayed as internment camps or re-education camps as if it was like they were trying to stop people from being gay. That's not the way that the Cuban uh, government portrays it. Here's what Castro says, though, in My Life is Autobiography about where some of them went off the, went off the rails. Those units were created all across the country and they did certain kinds of work, mainly helping out in agriculture. That is, it was not just the category of homosexuals that was affected, although certainly part of them. Those who were called up for compulsory military service because it was an obligation that everyone in the country was taking part in. 
That's how the problem came about. And it is true that they weren't internment camps or punishment units. On the contrary, we tried to raise the morale of the people who were sent to the camps, present them with an opportunity to, to work, to help the country in those difficult times. There were also a lot of people who, for religious reasons, had the chance to help the country in another way. They gave their services not in combat units, but rather in labour units. And with respect to their material welfare, they even received the same benefits as hundreds of thousands of recruits who'd been drafted into the armed forces. Of course, later, in a visit I made to Camagui, touring one of the agricultural installations, I became aware of the distortion the original plan had been subjected to, because I can't deny that there were prejudices against the homosexuals. I personally asked for a review of that issue. Those units lasted only about three years. So in his version, they were set up for entirely uh, benign reasons. They were work camps for people right. who couldn't be drafted into the military. Yes, there were prejudices against the homosexuals. When he found out about some units where they were being treated badly, he had an inquiry into them and they were reformed or shut down. So again, that's his version of the story. Agree with it, don't agree with it, believe it, don't believe it. But this, the way it gets portrayed in the U.S. media isn't necessarily the only version of right. the story. Which one is the truth? I can't say. Right. But I can say this. What we know about Castro is he's a lawyer who worked for the poor, put his life on the line multiple times to try and overthrow a corrupt government, uh, instituted health care reform, education reform, ended racial segregation, uh, spoke for his entire life about social justice reform. So if he was, in fact, um, oppressing homosexuals, it would go against everything he ever said in his entire life that he believed in and all of the other works that we know he did do. On the other hand, we know that the U.S. media, government, CIA, has spent 60 years trying to <laughs> vilify dehumanize, paint him as being the ultimate evil. So we know that they have had and continue to have, obviously by this article, an extreme level of bias and spin and propaganda. So if I have to pick one of the sources to believe, if you put a gun to my head and said, which one do you think is probably telling the truth? The guy who put his life on the line and fought for... 60 years for social justice or claim to be fighting for social justice or the people that have obviously been lying and admit to lying to the people about the CIA's involvement in overthrowing a government, the people that tried to assassinate, overthrow, have lied, spun, propagandized, and not only done this in Cuba, but knowingly, we know they have done this country after country after country around the world, particularly in Latin America. Which one are you going to believe? Take it face value. It's not going to be the fucking U.S. media. I tell you that. If I have to believe one, I don't right. want to. I don't want to believe either at face value. Right. My instinct is to be skeptical of both. That's but right. if I had to pick one, Ray, right. yeah. it yeah. wouldn't be the fucking New York Times, Ray. The guy with the Or the CIA. Beard. Yeah, 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 yeah. Good point. My, my instinct, if I weigh up all of the evidence to determine which one of the two is probably the most credible, it's Castro, not the New York Times. Right. Also, talking about homosexuals in America, comparing it Vegas. to this, oh. this, suppo this supposed oppression 
Leave Ryan out of this. This oppression uh, of Cubans, of homosexuals by the Cubans. Uh, meanwhile, in the US, uh, prior to 1962, sodomy was a felony in every state in wow. the United States. Wow. Punished by lengthy terms of imprisonment and or hard labour. Um, as of today, do you know how many states still have sodomy laws in the United States, Ray? No, they bothered removing them from the books as opposed to ignoring it. No, I, I don't know. Please tell me. Well, 17 states uh, still have sodomy laws Please don't be in the United States. Please don't be Virginia. Please don't be Virginia. <laughs> By 2002, only 36 states had repealed their sodomy laws. Mm. Was it 52 minus 36 is 6. Oh, that's 16, uh, 16 left. No, 17 left. No, same thing. Okay. So there's still, uh, there's still yeah, 17 states that have not repealed their sodomy laws. Right. So, you know, get off the fucking high horse. I mean, A, I don't believe that there was systematic repression of homosexuals deliberate by the Cuban government. B, you've still got fucking uh, sodomy laws in a third of the states in the United States. Like, so fucking shut up. Right. Mr. Castro, uh, this is back to the Times. Oh, but no, sorry. They said something about his sinister unit. Uh, yes. The yes. Committees for the Defense of the Revolution. Sinister. Um, now, I believe that a certain country, not far from Cuba, has had a policy of see something, say something over the course of the last 10 years. Yes, we have. Is that sinister, Ray? Um, no. Well, yes, yeah, of course. Yeah, but, but again, so, so he's got to defend his people because, again, the CIA are trying to find people who are against Castro. They want to back them financially, militarily. So, yeah, he's got to keep an eye on things. So why is this system set up for the defense of the current government of Cuba sinister? Because it goes against what America wants. Yeah, here he is. He has the, you know, the largest superpower in the fucking history of the world trying to uh, overthrow him through means fair and foul. Invasions, uh, espionage, controlling the media uh, from offshore, setting up radio stations, TV stations, newspapers, and, and dropping leaflets, right. bombing his facilities and his agricultural infrastructure, um, in, assassination attempts, direct and indirect, um, and trying to pay people to cause problems and, and overthrow the government. When he sets up a system to say to people, hey, listen, if you see somebody doing something suspicious, let us know, that's sinister. No. When the world's great superpower has a ragtag bunch of Islamic fundamentalists uh, trying to overthrow their country and they institute see something, say something, yeah. that's fine. That's just common sense. That's lo that, that's logic. That's right. You'd not to mention, too. yeah, not to mention the NSA recording every fucking phone call and every email of everybody on the planet, and probably this conversation. Oh, without doubt. <laughs> If they weren't already, they were when we started the Fidel series. <laughs> By the way, hello, NSA folks. We feel hello. sorry for you having to listen to every fucking word of this. By the way, fuck you. <laughs> um, Mr. Ka back to the times. Yes. But, you know, that's sinister, right? That is, it's yeah. when they do it, it's sinister. When we do it, well, that's just logical. Mr. Castro regularly fanned the flames of revolution with his oratory. In marathon speeches... 
He incited the Cuban people by laying out what he considered the evils of capitalism in general and of the United States in particular. For decades, the regime controlled all publications and broadcasting outlets and restricted access to goods and information in ways that would not have been possible if Cuba were not an island. Now, that's true. Now, again, let's, let's uh, well, you know, he's laying out the evils of capitalism uh, from the United States. I think the people of Cuba were probably pretty fucking familiar themselves firsthand <laughs> with the yeah, evils of capitalism that. because, yeah, they lived through it, people. Uh, I don't think Castro really needed to remind them. Maybe the new generations that didn't live through that, he had to explain to them what it was like in in recent decades. But certainly their parents and grandparents lived through it. Um, Now, there is a fair criticism here. Controlling all publications and broadcasting outlets, there was complete control of the media in Cuba. Now, I'm going to explain the reason for this. I've touched on it before. As we've said, the CIA was uh, not just prepared, but obsessed with overthrowing the, the, the revolutionary government, had endless supply of funds to throw at it. One of the things that they did in Cuba, and they've done all around the world, where they wanted to overthrow the countries, one of their standard operating tactics, and again, I'm not making this up, this isn't some fucking tinfoil hat conspiracy theory, go read Tim Weiner's Pulitzer Prize winning history on the fucking CIA, Legacy of Ashes, he, which is based all on you know uh, freedom of information files released from the CIA and interviews with CIA operatives and directors, etc. Standard operating tactic of the CIA is to fund media sources, television, newspapers, magazines, radio, and these days, internet websites, Facebook pages, Twitter mm-hmm. accounts, you know, you name it, that um, provide fake news or incendiary propaganda. They invent stories. Uh, they just, uh, you know, blanket the target country with fake news, propaganda, trying to get the people inflamed to rise up and overthrow their government. There's no fucking debate about this. This is on record. And if, and it, even though um, Castro prevented them from owning any properties in Cuba to do this, which they would have done if they'd been allowed to, they controlled a large component of the media before, during the Batista regime, and they would have controlled it afterwards if if there had been, quote-unquote, free media. Um, They were still doing it. They set up something called Radio Marti. It was a radio station based out of Miami that was broadcasting to Cuban people. They set up TV stations to do that later on. Uh, they 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 dropped leaflets and and all sorts of stuff to try and uh, spread propaganda across the country. So this is why a country like Cuba doesn't have free media. It's to prevent the U.S. using that media as a propaganda weapon to incite mm-hmm. the people. I mean, that's a very real problem. Now, by the way, not just. <laughs> Not just fucking uh, uh, Cuban or communist countries that do this. Every country in the world, every Western democracy in the world has restrictions on foreign-owned media. They have foreign-owned media legislation in place for exactly the same purpose, to prevent foreign uh, countries from 
manipulating the information that the people in the country get. How many foreign-owned media companies are there in the United States, Ray? I don't know of any personally. Me either. I'm going to look it up. Uh, Well, most of the media in the U.S. is owned by six American companies anyway. Uh, Here we go. FCC 2013 article, Washington Post. Federal Communications Commission has voted unanimously to to relax a decades-old rule that kept foreigners from owning more than a 25% stake in a U.S. radio or television station. So, for most of American history, foreign ownership was extremely restricted. This is why Rupert Murdoch, by the way, had to become an American citizen before he could uh, set up Fox Television Ah, Network. Gotcha. So, uh, yeah. Uh, So, so foreign-owned media is, is, is an issue for every country in the world. Now, particularly when you're a tiny island off the coast of the United States that's under a constant attack and is on war footing from the United States, you're going to be very, very rigorous about preventing any sort of foreign uh, 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 incendiary access to your media. So the way it gets portrayed, though, is it's a bad thing because he's preventing freedom of speech. And I'm not saying that's not part of it. Maybe it is. But the overwhelming justification for it is to stop the United States from spreading lies and propaganda and bullshit uh, using foreign you know, US-controlled media. I would do exactly Absolutely. the same thing in his position. Absolutely. Again, does the New York Times provide any of that perspective? No. New. As revolution established at home, Mr. Castro looked to export it. Thousands of Cuban soldiers were sent to Africa to fight in Angola, Mozambique and Ethiopia in support of communist insurgents. The strain on Cuba's treasury and its society was immense. But Mr. Castro insisted on being a global player in the communist struggle. Well, we've touched on this in the Cold War series in various points. Part of the um, uh, Marxist uh, 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 thinking around communism is that for communism to be successful anywhere, it had to be supported by communist countries in other places. You needed a communist trading bloc. For a variety of reasons, number one, to try and stop the capitalists from trying to destroy you, because that is what everyone knew capitalists would try and do, and also because you need other partners to trade with, and at a very basic level, because you believe in the struggle for people's rights against the sort of oppression that the people had in Cuba under the colonial, as Kennedy himself put it, the American colonization of Cuba. Uh, as Kennedy himself said, it was the worst, most egregious colonization anywhere in the world was the U.S. colonization of Cuba. Fucking John F. Kennedy said that, man. So, you know, part of their struggle was to support the people's struggles for freedom in other parts of the world. So they were supporting people's revolutions. Now, of course, we, we love supporting people's revolutions, uh, we're supporting the revolution of the people in Syria right now. Uh, we we supported the people's revolution in Iraq against Saddam Hussein. In Egypt for a bit, kind of, not really. Um, <laughs> you know, so when, when, when we're supporting the people's struggles, we're supporting them as freedom fighters, but when we're not, 
it's they're communist insurgents as part of the communist takeover of the world, you know. Pinko bastards. As potential threats to his rule were eliminated, Mr. Castro tightened his grip. Camilo Cienfuegos, who led a division in the insurrection and was immensely popular in Cuba, was killed in a plane crash days after going to arrest Huber Matos in Camaguay on Mr. Castro's orders. His body was never found. Che Guevara, who had become hostile towards the Soviet Union, broke with Mr. Castro before going off to Bolivia, where he was captured and killed in 1967 for trying to incite a revolution there. Now, this is the biggest load of bullshit in the entire story. Mm-hmm. Um, the suggestion here is that Camillo Sanfuegos was executed by Fidel when his plane crashed. I mean, no evidence at all for that. He was loved by Fidel. I've never read anything to the contrary that he was loved by Fidel and he's honoured to, even today in Cuba as one of the original guys that was on the grandma. So um, the suggestion, the way they write it, though, is like he was executed. He tight- Castro tightened his grip, potential threats to his rule. He was killed in a plane crash, right? They, they, they yeah. string it all together like he was taken out of commission. But that's just bullshit as far as I'm aware. Also, Che Guevara becoming hostile and breaking with Castro. Again, the suggestion is that he and Castro had a falling out. Not at all true from anything I've read. In fact, Fidel tried to prevent Che from going to Bolivia. Um, He thought it was a kind of bad idea. A, he wanted to keep him in Cuba because they still had a lot of work to do. It was very early into the revolution. I think it was like 65 when he left. Um, And B... Uh, you know, he didn't believe the conditions were right in Bolivia for the revolution. He tried to talk Che out of it. Che said, no, no, I really have to do this. You know, Che, when he left Mexico, um, he had devoted himself to supporting revolutions around the world, the people's revolutions. Cuba was just the first in a line of revolutions that he intended to support. And Mm -hmm. as people probably know, he was uh, captured by the CIA and executed and his hands were cut off uh, in Bolivia. Um, Why? Why do they need to cut off his hands? Because they were Caesar uh, fans? The sa- yeah, the same reason Mark Antony had uh, Cicero's hands cut off because he had written against them. Uh, I think it was proof of identity in part, maybe, you know, his fingerprint, right. his thumbprint or something. But it was also just, it was just to insult the corpse right. and just to be cockheads. You know? Anyway, um... So there's there's no evidence. The way they suggest this is just completely wrong as far as I'm aware. Uh, and Che, again, Fidel never said anything, but ne- never spoke in Che in any way uh, in the course of his life without love and respect and admiration and honour. He thought the Bolivian Revolution was probably premature and foolish, but outside of that, uh, nothing but love for Che. Uh, who, by the way, we should do a series on, and we will, I guess, when we get to the show, because, again, he's another one of these guys that's badly scorned by the u.s and again when you read his story and his writings and you get to know what he stood for and what he did it just doesn't add up to the 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 way he's portrayed by the u.s cool looking forward to it despite the fiery rhetoric from mr castro in the early years of the revolution washington did attempt a reconciliation by some accounts in the weeks before he was assassinated in 1963 kennedy had aides look at mending fences providing Mr. Castro was willing to break with the Soviets. 
But with Kennedy's assassination and suspicions that Mr. Castro and the Cubans were somehow involved, the 90 miles separating Cuba from the United States became a gulf of antagonism and mistrust. The CIA tried several times to eliminate Mr. Castro or undermine his authority. Several times? Uh, Yeah, 638 times. (laughs) Uh, I guess that's several. One plot involved exposing him to a chemical that would cause his beard to fall out and another causing a poisoned pen to kill him. Mr. Castro often boasted how many times he'd escaped CIA plots to kill him and he ordered information about the foiled attempts to be put on display at a Havana museum. Nice. Uh, So finally, there's a small mention here of CIA assassination attempts. Um, And they also mentioned the suspicions about Castro involved in Kennedy's assassination. There were suggestions that Lee Harvey Oswald was um, associated with Cuba. By the way, in Castro's autobiography, My Life, he talks about the fact that Oswald had tried to visit Cuba uh, just before the assassination and they refused him entry. The Mm. Cubans refused him entry because they thought he was a CIA plant and he had connections to the CIA, as as we now know, legitimate connections to the CIA previously. And so the, the Cuba refused, and Castro said in his autobiography, Thank fuck we didn't let him in. Can you imagine what would have happened if we'd let him in and then he went back and assassinated Kennedy? How that would have looked? Oh, my God. Jesus Christ. So, I mean, yeah. We would have invaded. We would have flat out. Oh, my God. Yeah. So Cuba um, obviously denied involvement. um, and, uh, and, And Castro, as I may have mentioned previously, when he's interviewed ever about the assassination, and the, the single shooter theory, his position has always been, look, I'm a sniper fucking sniper. What do you call him? A sniper shooter? <laughs> I, I, sniper. I shot. Yeah, I'm trained in shooting a sniper rifle, right? And I was a revolutionary. I fought in a war. I used a sniper rifle on many occasions. I know how hard it is to shoot at a certain distance. And I know how hard it is to shoot at a moving target with a sniper rifle. I know how hard it is to shoot several times in succession with wind calibration when the when the bolt goes after the first shot, you know, obviously you completely lose your aim. You need to reload, you need to recalibrate by then the 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 target has moved and is continuing to move and you need to calibrate for that. He said, "Look, even for the greatest snipers in the fucking world, that would be a hard shot to do." And I think Mythbusters or some other, you know, shows have tackled this before, and they've shown that it can be done, but you would have to be highly, highly skilled and probably very lucky to do it. Fidel said, look, I don't think a guy like Oswald had any chance of taking that shot and making that shot uh, under those conditions with the very small amount of training that he had. But anyway... He was suspicious, but he didn't have any answers either. Whenever asked, what do you think, Abby says, I don't know. I don't know. I find the official story hard to believe, but I don't really know what happened. Anywho, uh, where do we go here? Oh, yes. Um, Relations between the United States and Cuba briefly thawed in the 1970s during the administration of President Jimmy Carter. For the first time, Cuban-Americans were allowed to visit family in Havana under strict guidelines. But that fleeting detente ended in 1980, when Mr. Castro tried, tried to defuse growing domestic discontent by allowing 125,000 Cubans to flee in boats, makeshift rafts, and inner tubes. Departing from the beach at Mariel, 
He used the opportunity to empty Cuban prisons of criminals and people with mental illnesses and forced them to join the Mariel boatlift. Mr. Carter's successor, Reagan, slammed shut the door that Mr. Carter had opened. Now, I fucking love this, man. Like, so... <laughs> On one hand, Americans are constantly criticizing Castro for not letting people leave the country and for putting political opponents in prisons. Mm-hmm. So then he lets them out of prisons and lets them leave the country to go to the United States, and he gets criticized for that. Can't oh, he sent, he sent us all of our all of his prisoners. Well, hold on. You're telling me they're all fucking political prisoners in the first place and they should be let free and let leave the country, which is Here what he did. And then he did that and he gets criticised for doing that as well. He can't win. It's a lose-lose no. situation. You put them in jail, you get criticised. You let them out of jail, you get, you get criticised. You stop them from going to the United States, you get criticised. You let them go to the United States, you get criticised. Seriously, like, what the fuck? Yeah, yeah. No, no thinking he's a, involved. Just listen to the to the press tell you whatever he does is wrong. He's a pariah. Yeah, he can't win. Anything he does is just oh fuck! Can't believe he did that. What a cunt. Um, in 1989, when frustrated veterans from Cuba's African ventures began rallying around General Arnaldo Ochoa, who led Cuban forces on the continent. Mr. Castro effectively got rid of a potential rival by bringing the general and some of his supporters to trial on drug charges. General Okoa and several other high-ranking officers were executed on the orders of Raul Castro, who was then the Minister of Defense. Okay, again, one version of the story. Um, Fidel's version is that Okoa and others were involved with Pablo Escobar, they did uh, a long trial and investigation. And again, at least NYT's pointing out, there was a trial. They weren't mm -hmm. just randomly executed. They're suggesting that they were uh, a rival to Castro's power. Castro's saying, no, they were dealing, they were doing drugs with Pablo Escobar. We can't be, set, I mean, we're, we've got enough problems as it is. Right. We can't be seen to be involved with fucking Escobar's cartel, man. If, if, if Cuba is seen to be involved in drug cartels, Colombian drug cartels. Fuck, imagine what we're up against then. But funnily enough, what he does say in his autobiography when he talks about this, it, he, this is a quote. What's incredible is that the people who got mixed up in that affair did so because they thought they were helping the Republic. He says, look, they were uh, making money out of this, out of helping the Escobar cartel sell drugs for weapons and all right. this kind of stuff. And the money was going back to Cuba. And he, the way he portrays it in the book, he says, look, they, they, they thought they were doing the right thing. They were actually bridging these two, making money. The money was going back to Cuba. But, you know, we've got strict laws in place against being involved in anything like, you know, dealing in drugs and so he was, they were tried, they were found guilty, and they were executed. But Castro kind of is fairly sympathetic towards the way he portrays it. So, um, yeah, so yes, he was executed and tried, but again, the Cuban version is for, it was dealing with Escobar. Um, it was against the law, and uh, there was a death penalty. Not as the New York Times positioned it, that he was just a threat to the regime. Right. 
The United States economic embargo imposed by Eisenhower and widened by Kennedy has continued for more than five decades, but its effectiveness was undermined by the Soviet Union, which gave Cuba $5 billion a year in subsidies, and later by Venezuela, which sent Cuba badly needed oil and long-term economic support. Most other countries, including close United States allies like Canada, maintained relations with Cuba throughout the decades and continued trading with the island. In recent years, successive American presidents have punched big holes in the embargo, allowing a broad range of economic activity, though maintaining the ban on tourism. The embargo has been condemned, by the way, by the United Nations 21 times in the last 21 years, Mm. who call it a violation of international law. Wow. So which of the two governments are the ones guilty of breaking international laws here or of oppression. The United States, which has maintained this embargo despite the United Nations calling it a violation of international law, or the Cubans. Uh, Again, New York Times doesn't mention that. Uh, Also in a 2005 interview, George P. Schultz, who was Secretary of State under Reagan, called the embargo insane. Yeah, it wasn't doing anything. I mean, if everybody else is trading, it's just our pride that, no, we're not going to trade because you won't kowtow. So, again, it's just American blindness. But we've gotten used to that over the decades since World War II. I faced my greatest challenge after I turned 60, Mr. Castro said in an interview with Vanity Fair magazine in 1994. He was referring to the collapse of the Soviet empire, which brought an end to the subsidies that had kept his government afloat for so long. He had also lost a steady source of oil and a reliable buyer for Cuban sugar. Abandoned, isolated, facing increasing dissent at home, Mr. Castro seemed to have come to the end of his line. Cuba's collapse appeared imminent, and Mr. Castro's final hours in power were widely anticipated. Miami exiles began making elaborate preparations for a triumphant return. But Mr. Castro, defying predictions, fought on. He chose an unlikely weapon, the hated American dollar which he had long condemned as a corrupt symbol of capitalism. Actually, he condemned it for a lot of very practical reasons, as I mentioned on an earlier episode. It's very hard to deal in American dollars when you're not allowed to deal with American banks uh, or with America. But no, let's not point that out. Let's just say it's a corrupt symbol, New York Times. In the summer of 1993, he made it legal for Cubans to hold American dollars spent by tourists or sent by exiled family members. That policy eventually led to a dual currency system that has fostered resentment and hampered economic development in Cuba. Mr. Castro, the self-proclaimed Marxist-Leninist, was also willing to experiment with capitalism and free enterprise, at least for a time. Encouraged by his brother Raul, he allowed farmers to sell excess produce at market rates, and he ordered officials to turn a blind eye to small family-run kitchens and restaurants called paladars that charged market price. Under Raul Castro, those reforms were broadened considerably, though they were sometimes met with public grumbling from his older brother. But despite his apparent distaste for capitalism and lingering memories of the 1950s Cuba that preceded his rule, Fidel Castro continued to foster Cuba's Cuba's tourism industry. He allowed Spanish, Italian and Canadian companies to develop resort hotels and vacation properties, usually in association with an arm of the Cuban military. For many years, the resorts were off limits to most Cubans. They generated hard cash, but a new generation of struggling young Cuban women were lured into prostitution by the tourists' money. 
For a time, Mexican and Canadian investors poured money into the decrepit telephone company owned by ITT until it was nationalised by Mr Castro in 1960, mining operations and other enterprises which helped keep Cuba's economy from collapsing. He declared an emergency during which he expected the Cuban people to tighten their belts. He called the United States embargo genocide. All his efforts were not enough to keep dissent from sprouting in Havana, Santiago de Cuba and other urban areas during his, this period of hardship. Despite worldwide condemnation for his actions, Mr. Castro clamped down on a fledgling democracy movement, jailing anyone who dared to call for free elections. He also cracked down on the nucleus of an independent press, imprisoning or harassing Cuban reporters and editors. I did want to mention that uh, when he was getting help from the Soviet Union and they were improving their medical and literary literacy rates, excuse me, one of the things that they were also um, able to clamp down on, and this might not sound like a big deal, but it is, uh, is that they were really able to put a big dent in prostitution. And then when they opened it up to the um, American uh, dollar and they allowed those other countries to to build hotels and stuff like that, prostitution did rise again. So again... These people are just trying to survive by any way they can. But for a while, he was able to uh, to uh, work on that. One of the things that, you know, shamed their country. But it didn't last for long because of the economic hardships. I don't know what the rates were of prostitution then and afterwards. Um, but yeah, prostitution is one of those things that women are always going to turn to. And men, when they're um, hard up. Um, in struggling economies in particular. Sad, and true. in developed economies, they still turn to it for a whole variety of reasons. Right. Um, <clears throat> now, again, I think the biggest com- condemnation of Castro, which is understandable, is, you know, these these concerns that people have about uh, democracy uh, and uh, an independent press, something that in the developed countries of the West we take for granted, we value very highly. And we look at it from our perspective. Well, we like democracy. Well, we like it until Trump gets elected and then we're like, fuck, what happened to democracy? Um, We like a free press until you read this article and realize your free press, it's a a corporate-owned, biased press. It's not really as free as you might think. Anywho, um, but again, you, you have to think about these things from the perspective of Castro and the government there, and also I think the vast majority of the people. Tiny Island, they've been under a constant war footing since the revolution succeeded in the beginning of 1959. The US has been at war with them. They've been at war militarily and then economically since 1959 with the world's greatest superpower that's 90 miles away. Now, we all know that during wartime, you have to make concessions with regards to certain civil liberties. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is true all around the world, in the United States, in Australia, uh, everywhere. Even the most developed economies clamp down on certain civil liberties, liberties during times of war. In the United States, you have the Espionage Act that was implemented, I think, during World War One. And you can still have it today. It's, it was, it's been used to charge everyone from Julian Assange to Snowden to Bradley Manning to Thomas Drake to um, uh, the Pentagon Papers guy whose name skips my memory for some reason. Um, it'll come to me later. Um, 
you know, so you, you you don't have complete freedom of speech. You don't have complete freedom of the press. We have reports here of how the CIA uh, asked or told the or the government told the New York Times to pull out mention of the CIA's involvement in the Bay of Pigs. Mm-hmm. So, but particularly if you think about the situation from Cuba's point of view, tiny country, poor country, under attack from the United States for sixty years, you're going to be very, very, very careful about what influences you allow. And, and an open democracy, we know how democracies are manipulated by moneyed interests and media interests in our countries, Ray. Right. I mean, no one's going to debate the role that the media and Fox News played in Trump's electoral success uh, in the United States. So if mm-hmm. that is true in a developed country, how much more true is it in an undeveloped country that's being attacked by the world's greatest developed country. Yeah, because like you said, like you said previously, if you, if the United States has a way to get their toe in, if if they're allowed to have a radio station or newspapers or whatever in Cuba, they're just going to get in and grow and grow and run amok and cause a whole bunch of trouble. So Castro is forced to clamp down on most things just to be able to get through the next day because the Americans are there. They've got more money than God and they are ready to go after him in whatever way uh, Castro slips up and allows them to. I mean, his country has been under siege for 60 years by the world's greatest superpower. It's like a small town being besieged by Julius Caesar for 60 years, (laughs) you know, or Augustus at the height of the empire. I mean, when you're under siege, you're very careful about who you let in and out and who's in control. Um, you particularly, get a siege mentality, yeah. You do get a siege mentality, right. Now, what would happen? Let's say, theoretically, let's say at any point in the last 60 years or now, the, the Cubans said, all right, starting tomorrow, we're going to have completely free media and um, complete democracy. We're going to have open elections Political parties, you name it, anyone, say anything. Um, what do you think would be the very next thing that would happen? Mm-hmm. I would imagine just a lot of foreign countries would come in and try to buy up influence, but I'm not sure what you're getting at. Well, one foreign country in particular. Right, you can right. absolutely guarantee that a large percentage of the free media that was set up after that would be directly or indirectly financed and controlled by American corporations or the CIA. Absolutely. Secondly, you can absolutely be convinced that one or a number of the political parties that were running would be directly or indirectly financed by the CIA. Mm-hmm. Who would I mean, own I, their ass? I, th- I think it's very hard to argue against that that would happen after what they've been trying to do for the last 60 years. So is that a recipe for a successful uh, future for Cuba? (laughs) Allowing the Americans back in to control the media and, and and the political system? I think not. So, again, kind of in between a rock and a hard place if you're Castro. Do you, do you let that happen and, and, and you go back to how it was under Batista or do you clamp down and get accused of being an oppressor of human rights? What is the worst scenario there? I I, I don't know. If I, I keep yeah. saying, if I was in my if I was in his shoes, what would I have done? Right. 
And, and keep in mind that no matter which way you go, you're not going to be seen as doing something well by the people, that you, uh, by the government of the United States. So it's, for you, it's a lose-lose no matter what. Exactly. Now, for, for young listeners or um, people that haven't read much and they're thinking, well, you're just being hysterical, Riley. The, the, the CIA doesn't care <laughs> about overthrowing governments. Oh, please. Here's a list of just Latin American governments that the CIA has overthrown using espionage um, uh, since the Cuban Revolution. Guatemala, 1954. Haiti, 1959. Brazil, 1964. Uruguay, 1969. Bolivia, 1971. Chile, 1973. Argentina, 1976. El Salvador, 1980. Panama, 1989. Peru, 1990. Um, Now, also in uh, Nicaragua, they were funding the counter-revolutionary movements. Um, That was the whole... Oliver North fucking Iran-Contra scandal that blew up during Reagan, went all the way up to Reagan during the Reagan, later years of the Reagan administration. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, come on, folks. Like, whether or not you know that history, got to believe that Castro knew that history. The Cuban people (laughs) know that history. Right. So they know that that is what the CIA does to Latin American countries when they want to overthrow the government. They use espionage, uh, uh, military, media, political, economic to overthrow countries. So, again, there's no middle ground here. You either allow that happen or you lock the country down and stop it from happening. But again, again, you do that, you get accused of being a human right, human rights abuser and oppressing freedom of speech. But it's never perceived. It, well, yeah, it's not. It's never presented in the American media as well. You know, okay, fuck it. We have overthrown a whole bunch of countries, and we wanted to. We're on record. We wanted to overthrow the Cuban government as well, and so they locked us out, and that's what they had to do. It's never hinted at that. It's always. He was oppressing his people by denying them freedom of speech and freedom of political expression. In 1994, for the first time, demonstrators took to the streets of Havana to express their anger over the failed promises of the revolution. Mr. Castro had to personally appeal for calm. Then in early 1996, he seized an opportunity to rebuild his support by again demonizing the United States. Um... Look, this whole people being upset over the failed promises, uh, again, even Castro readily admits to, yeah, I can understand. They they see the U.S. media. They know that these people have got big screen TVs and big houses mm-hmm. and cars. And I, I understand they all want that. We all want that. I want that. Right. But we decided as a people to build a new system, a fairer system, and so... You know, and we've been crushed by an embargo. So, look, I understand they're not happy. I get it. I wouldn't be happy either. I'm not happy. I don't think he yeah. lived fairly high on the hog, Castro, despite, again, all these stories you hear about, oh, he's got hundreds of millions in fucking Swiss bank accounts and he lives in a palace and a yacht. Again, all of that's pure bullshit as far as I can tell. It's not supported by any evidence. It's pure, pure propaganda. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of his speeches, uh, if you read his speeches over the last 60 years, they've all been about, yeah, look, I know it's hard, but what's the alternative? Let the Americans back in and we go back to the way it was. So we either persist and try and wait out the embargo and we try and build this new thing or we give up and go back to the way it was. But I, I say, 
Let's persist. Let's be patient. We'll get there eventually. A South Florida group, Brothers to the Rescue, had been flying three civilian planes towards the Cuban coast when two were shot down by Cuban military jets. Four men on board were killed. Mr. Castro raged against Washington, maintaining that the planes had violated Cuban airspace. American officials condemned the attack. Now, what it doesn't say is the rest of the story. So the incident was investigated by the International Civil Aviation Organization, ICAO. Their report concluded that the authorities in Cuba had notified the authorities in the United States of multiple violations of their airspace since May 1994. Mm -hmm. And in at least one case in July 1995, the pilot had released leaflets over Havana, propaganda leaflets. Now, the United States authorities had issued public statements advising of the potential consequences of unauthorized entry into Cuban airspace and had even initiated legal actions against one of the pilots, Basulto, um, but they didn't take away his flight certificate, his ability to fly, and they gave him his plane permission. You can't just take off and fly over international waters without permission from the FAA, but he did. Uh, he was warned by the FAA that he might be shot down, but said, you must understand I have a mission in life to perform. And so eventually, I mean, so again, what are, what are the Cubans going to do? You have planes flying illegally over your airspace without permission, not responding to your orders to leave your airspace. They're dropping propaganda leaflets over your island. The U.S. isn't stopping them, even though you've asked the U.S. government to stop them on a number of occasions. What are they to do? Just fucking yeah. turn a blind eye and let it happen and who's to say what they're going to drop next so yeah i mean you've got that yeah, is an act of war that is yeah what would america do we would certainly be shooting some planes down oh my god can you imagine if it was reverse if cuban planes were flying in over u.s territory dropping propaganda leaflets they'd be in 50 Hell, million pieces exactly yeah. but you know so again Cubans tried to get the American government to stop it, tried to get these guys to turn back. They wouldn't. They shot them down eventually, two out of the three. But it was condemned by the Americans. Like, fucking, you can't win here. You I mean, they didn't stop it when they could have, right. so the Cubans had to stop it. But they get condemned. Until then, President Bill Clinton had been moving discreetly but steadily towards easing the United States embargo and reestablishing some relations with Cuba. But in the wake of the attack and the virulent reaction from Cuban-Americans in Florida, a state Mr. Clinton considered important to his re-election bid, he reluctantly signed the Helms-Burton Law, which allowed the United States to punish foreign companies that were using confiscated American property in Cuba. American property? <clears throat> Cuban property in Cuba. <laughs> right. American property in Cuba. Like, st- so it's 1990s, and they're still holding on to the idea that they own. Yeah, that they Please. own the property that they had stolen from the Cuban people. Right. The State Department's first warnings under the new law went to a Canadian mining company that had taken over a huge nickel mine and a Mexican investment group that had purchased the Cuban telephone company. Despite protests from American allies, the United States maintained the Helms-Burton law as a weapon against Mr. Castro, although all its provisions have never been carried out. So here's the actual text of the Helms-Burton law. Any non-US company that deals economically with Cuba 
can be subjected to legal action and that company's leadership can be barred from entry into the United States. Mm. Uh, not to mention if you um, use some of this so-called American property. To date, executives from Italy, Mexico, Canada, Israel and the United Kingdom have been barred entry to the United States under the Helms-Burton Act. <laughs> Goodness gracious. So that's been the last 20 years, not only trade embargo, but also punishing companies that, uh, countries uh, and people of countries that have, uh, that try and do trade with Cuba. God. But in Cuba, the American actions reinforced Mr. Castro's complaints about American arrogance and helped channel domestic dissent towards Washington. One of his strengths as a communicator, he considered Reagan his only worthy competitor in that regard had always been to transform his anger towards the United States into a rallying cry for the Cuban people. Again, totally discounting the anger of the Cuban people themselves. It's always right. Castro's it's anger. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We are left with the honor of being one of the few adversaries of the United States, Mr. Castro told Maria Shriver of NBC in a 1998 interview. When Ms. Shriver asked him if that truly was an honor, he answered, of course. For such a small country as Cuba, to have such a gigantic country as the United States live so obsessed with this island, it's an honor for us. <laughs> and that's when Fidel turned to her and said, did you know that your, hoop, your husband's stooping the maid? Or house, whatever she is, I don't know. But yeah. As he grew older and grayer, Mr. Castro could no longer be easily linked to the intense guerrilla fighter who had come out of the Sierra Maestro. He rambled incoherently in his long speeches. He was rumored to be suffering from various diseases. After 40 years, the revolution he started no longer held promise, and Cubans by the thousands, including many who had never known any other life but under Mr. Castro, risked their lives trying to reach the United States on rafts, inner tubes, and even old trucks outfitted with floats. Um, they know the promises. Ne- the, the revolution no longer held any promise, according to who? According to the New York Times. Just their opinion. Um, uh, now, why were the people risking their lives on rafts and inner tubes? Because planes aren't allowed to fly from the United States to Cuba. I'm sure Fidel would have happily said, hey, jump on a plane and fly over there. But no, commercial air travel is not allowed, according right. to the United States. Um <clears throat> Although the revolution lost its luster, what never diminished was Mr. Castro's ability to confound American officials and to create situations to seize the advantage of a particular moment. That was evident early in 1998 when Pope John Paul II visited Havana and met with Mr. Castro. The meeting was widely expected to be seen as a rebuke and an embarrassment to Mr. Castro. The aging anti-communist pontiff stood beside the aging communist leader who had abandoned his military uniform for the occasion in favour of a dark suit. The Pope talked about human rights and the lack of basic freedoms in Cuba. But he also called Washington's embargo unjust and ethically unacceptable, allowing Mr. Castro to claim a political, if not a moral, victory. So even the Pope criticised the embargo. Did the US pay any heed? <laughs> no. They told you the Pope don't... to go, f- go fuck exactly. yourself, Pope. Mm. Exactly. Mr. Pope. Um, okay, look, I'm getting bored with this. I'm just going to skip through it. Uh, they talk about the whole um, uh, Gonzalez, the Lion Gonzalez thing when the kid and his right. family tried to get to Miami. His family, including his mother, died. His father, still in Cuba, demanded his return. A whole bunch of 
Cuban exiles in Miami refused. Eventually, Janet Reno went in and, and took him by force and sent him back to Cuba. Only good thing Janet Reno did. They mention again here that that was a sort of a, a ironic because um, when Fidel was in Mexico before the revolution, he had his wife, Diaz Balat. He had a kid with her, a son, um, and Fidelito, his name was. And um, she took him to New York and enrolled him for a year after Castro went off to Cuba for the revolution. Mm -hmm. And then he persuaded to send the boy back. And uh, 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 they they sort of had a custody battle over the kid, basically. Um, what they don't mention, is, well, they mentioned briefly, she was uh, her brother. She said she was related to an official in the Batista's government. It was actually her brother that the kid was being raised by, um, who was one, had been a, a Rafael Diaz Balad, who was an official in Batista's government. And Fidel refused to allow his son to be raised by one of Batista's men. So they sort of make a snipe at him about that. They mention his uh, longtime common law wife, uh, Dahlia, sort of Deval. They were together for more than 40 years. They had five sons. Uh, and it says, because of Castro's homage to Alexander the Great, he named his sons Alexis, Alejandro, Angelito, Alexander, and Antonio. And uh, his nom de guerre, his uh, fake name during the revolution himself was Alejandro. He saw himself as Alexander the Great. Nice. Um, let me just skip through to a second here. Oh, they they call about they talk about Raúl Castro being an executioner, but again, as I've pointed out in earlier episodes, a look most of the executions that he's accused of happened after the revolution of of Batista's men, and yeah. as we've pointed out, they were trials. On top of that, um, Cuba since then has the death penalty. The last executions under the death penalty in Cuba were in 2003, but they have the death penalty for everything from murder, rape, terrorism, hijacking, drug trafficking, as I've mentioned before, espionage, treason. Under the constitution, under the law, they have death penalty for that. And the typical execution is by firing squad. Now, you may or may not agree with the death penalty. Personally, I don't. Hasn't We haven't had it in Australia since 1969, um, wow. But well over half the states in the United States, as well as the federal government, still have it. So it's a bit mm. outrageous for, for Americans to condemn the Castros for executions when those extra executions were either after the revolution, post-trials, or as a result of the death penalty since then, when you, you fucking killing people yourselves with the death penalty in most of the United States. So, you know... Just that kind of hypocrisy. They get called executioners. Thousands, you'll see this online. Thousands of people executed by the Castros. They're, they're, they're people that were executed if they're real. I mean, I think they're often quite inflated too. But if they're real, right. they're the result of the death penalty for those crimes that I mentioned before. You have the death it's penalty. The they have the death penalty. But they get called executioners. Brutal, right. hu- repressive executioners. Just that kind of simplistic shit that people read and they believe and they don't question and they don't they drill down and it. Exactly. they just accept it. Exactly. Finally, it finishes with the talk about him writing a rambling letter to the universe, students at the University of Havana 
two years ago. I read the letter. They call it a rambling letter. I read it. It was fairly short. It wasn't rambling. Give the guy a fucking break. He was 88 at the time. It was quite short and to the point. But um, they quote him finishing by saying, I do not trust the politics of the United States, nor have I exchanged a word with them, but this is not in any way a rejection of a peaceful solution to our conflicts. And that's kind of where it finishes. They talk about... um, Oh, I took... Oh, he also writes... The grave danger in this letter to the university students, the grave dangers that threaten humanity today have to give way to norms that are compatible with human dignity. No country is excluded from such rights. With this spirit, I have fought and will continue fighting until my dying breath. Here's a guy who's 88 at the time, still talking about the fight for human dignity and rights. Mm-hmm. Again, can you reconcile that with the view of Castro that you get through the U.S. media? No, they're two separate people completely. Um, So in April 2016, just to wrap up, he gave what was his last public appearance at the 7th Congress of the Cuban Communist Party. Um in his blue tracksuit. He was 90, almost 90. He bade farewell to the party and said, uh, soon I will be like everybody else. Our turn comes to us all, but the ideas of Cuban communism will endure. He told them that that would be the last time he would ever speak to them. And it was. He uh, passed away at the age of 90 a few months later. Uh, Look, that's... Fucking, we're well over an hour. Uh, that's four and a half hours of a brief introduction to Fidel Castro, people. I apologize in some ways for dragging you through that. I hope you persisted and stuck with it. I hope you found it interesting. I hope you learned something, uh, not just about Fidel. And, you know, we justify this because he is the last, you know, he was the last surviving major figure in the Cold War major major figure in 20th century history mm-hmm. um but also a, as a demonstration of the manipulation of the US media if you want to learn more about fidel until we get to the revolution which was probably 10 years away in our timeline read two books i recommend uh read fidel castro reader a collection of his speeches from her entire life and also My Life, his autobiography, which came out about 10 years ago. It was written as a series of conversations with uh, Spanish journalist uh, Ignacio Ramonet. He was the former editor-in-chief of Le Monde, uh, one of the founders of an NGO called Media Watch Global. Uh, he basically sat down with Fidel over a course of a number of years for weeks at a time, interviewed him, uh, recorded it went and transcribed those interviews. And the interesting thing about it is he wrote the first draft, gave that for Fidel to review, um, saying he could make changes if he wanted anywhere, removals or change words, whatever, but with the agreement that those changes would be noted in the final edition. So and and they do appear from time to time. You know, Fidel changed this word to that, or he took this line out, or whatever. That's noted actually in the text. 
Um, so anyway, that's it's considered. It's called My Life, the autobiography of Fidel Castro, but it's not a typical autobiography. It's sort of a question and answer thing. Very, very interesting read. I highly recommend it to give you a different perspective of Fidel Castro's life, ideology, vision, beliefs, and actions. And with that, we will be back to Yalta. Yeah, yeah. And and just want to say that as I learned a lot over the last couple of the last week or two, trying to learn about this man, and he was a lot more... Um, complex than we've been led to believe. He certainly had his reasons, his motivations, and he was doing the best he could with what he had, which is what we're all doing. So again, like Kama said, don't just listen to the news. Actually think and and be be a little critical of it, and you'll be a lot better off. I asked you before we started these shows, Ray, these last three episodes, to come at me with some hard pro-American perspectives you didn't really, you didn't really pony no. up, my friend. I'm sorry. I just, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm, I mean, do you, do you want the, you want the absolute honest fucking truth? Here I am, 50 years old, and I'm pissed as hell that I was tricked as a child to believe that there's a god. So now I get to spend all this time thinking about all the time I've wasted in church and all that shit. And I've also been told that America is the greatest country in the world. Everything we do is perfect, and everyone who fights against us is absolutely evil. And now I've learned that over the years. That's a bunch of horse shit. So when you say something like that, I, I, I don't deliver, even though I should, just because I'm still pissed at all the lies I've been told by people that I care about, people that supposedly care about me, institutions or whatever. And so I'm just, I'm just still dealing with peeling back the layers of bullshit that I've been told for the first, you know, 30 or 40 years of my life. So I apologize that I didn't come at you a lot harder, but that's kind of the reason why I did not. You're in shock. I am. In, I literally, I mean, I know it sounds stupid, but I am. I am. I mean, I'm not. I'm not going to do that to my kids. And and I'm, the life is what it is. And 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 you got to be honest with them. You got to be loving and kind and, and gentle. But you just tell them the truth. And you don't let them be 16. Not that I was. But you don't let someone who's 16 or 17 keep believing in Santa Claus. At some point, you got to sit them down and go, Hey, you're an adult now. Let's start talking about the way the world really is, and not the picture that I painted for you because you was two two years old. And I still am, in some ways, culturally and in other ways, I am in shock of all the bullshit that we get served up every day that we do not question, and I'm just tired of that shit. Yeah, well, eventually, I hope, you know, you move through anger to activism, and I guess that's one of the reasons why I do these shows, is, is to get people to, okay, okay, well, yeah, that sucks, but all right, so what do I do about it? Right. Um, what, what, what can I do to... Um, help people think more deeply or differently or at least open their eyes about the country that they live in and, and what we're being told and the, the truth or falseness of that. And, you know, you, you you get on a become more of an activist rather than just being being angry is OK for a while, but it's, it's yeah. not very productive. Right. I'm still there, right. but I, I totally agree with that. Well, I appreciate you being there for me to talk at, Ray, even yeah. if you didn't uh, push back very hard. No, I enjoyed it a lot because obviously you've been studying Castro for years and I, I really enjoyed receiving um, the the results of a lot, all that study. Well, 
I enjoyed getting an opportunity to uh, talk about one of my favourite subjects, and uh, it was a shame he had to die in order for me to do that. But <laughs> right, and, and coming soon is our Obit podcast. No, just joking. <laughs> So we will be back next time, unless anyone else dies in the interim. With, uh, Which is possible. Someone pay- died today. The, the the astronaut. Shit. Oh, John Glenn? Yeah. John Glenn. So now we got to do a John Glenn podcast. Yeah, no, I wouldn't say one of the major figures of the Cold War, right. but no. first first American to orbit the Earth, <laughs> so he's right. part of it. That's right. Definitely he's, part he's, of it. Exactly. We, we will get Russians. to John Glenn later on. Um, so anyway, thanks. We'll be back with Yalta next time, folks. Thanks for thanks for hanging in there. Oh, by the way, before I end up, <laughs> these these Castro shows that we've done are going to be free. They're going to remain free. So if there's Don't one thing that if there's one thing that you can do to help wake up your friends and neighbours and colleagues. Point them at these Castro episodes and saying, you know what? You need to go listen to these. Just go listen to these four episodes. They don't have to listen to the rest of the series. Listen to those. And hopefully, you know, that promote it on Facebook, promote it on Twitter, put it up on the bulletin board at your office, send emails to people, take a few minutes out to go, go, hey, I just listened to this and it blew my mind and you really should listen to it and... um, I'm not saying that just uh, you know to promote our show for selfish reasons because again these are going to be free we don't make any money out of right. that. Um, but but generally if if you think that people should understand this, point them at our economics episode uh, from earlier on in the series, which is free. I think episode three of econ- the economics of profiteering of war and uh, these Castro episodes, and and mm-hmm. I think that that's a good starting point for waking people up. Public service. Okay, fucking cue the music. Curtain has descended across the continent. Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. 